Thanks, worship team. Excellent, as always. I know what some of you are thinking. This guy's like a bad penny. We just can't get rid of him. <laughs> Mark's taking some uh, time off this summer for rest and renewal, and uh, I and some of the other pastors will be, will be uh, filling the spot uh, for a few weeks. Uh, my name's Gary Post, by the way, if we haven't met, and uh, we're going to be talking this morning out of, uh, out of 1 Corinthians 18. Uh, about Paul's role in, in Corinth and how he uh, started church there, how, how all that happened, God's promise to him, and, and, and in turn then God's promise to us. Let's pray about that. Dear Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for the, the opportunity to hear from your word. And uh, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be active and powerful, uh, would open our hearts to hear and, uh, and, and empower me as your uh, as your weak vessel uh, to speak and, and, to, uh, and to accomplish what you've intended in this moment. We ask all these things in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, um, after I retired from New Hope, that's what I thought. After, no, I'm happy, I'm happy to help, actually. Pastor Emeritus, I guess. After, uh, after I retired from New Hope, uh, so many of you were, were so kind, and Gene and I had the, uh, had a, uh, the blessing of being able to go on a 30-plus th- day uh, Viking ocean cruise in the Mediterranean. And we actually uh, visited many of the same places that Paul lived and worked and ministered in and I, I wanted to share a little bit of that with you. Relax, this isn't a travelogue. Uh, but I, I want to give you a little refresher here on, on geography. If you were as ge- geographically challenged as I am, I think I missed that whole class in seventh grade probably. Um, I'd like to show you uh, the Mediterranean where Paul lived and worked. These, uh, these arrows, these trips, are Paul's three missionary journeys, if you didn't know that. And you see the, the Mediterranean Sea there. Up above that, you see uh, Greece and Athens, Crete. And then uh, if you look closely, you'll see where Athens is. And uh, right on, on the other side of uh, that peninsula there is Corinth. Uh, that's, that's what we'll be talking about today is Corinth. If you cross the Aegean Sea there, uh, you'll see there's Ephesus. And when you look, uh, this, this map is not uh, current day. This is uh, the countries and the regions that they were as of the time of Paul. And so you see Galatia, Bithynia, Pontus. <clears throat> we'll read today that uh, Aquila came from Pontus. That's where he came from. Gene and I did a pre-trip in Cappadocia before the cruise, and uh, we visited some underground cities there, underground churches where Christians hid out in the 3rd and 4th century. And, um, and we also went hot air ballooning which was uh, a, lot of, a lot of fun. Uh, who, who knew that uh, Cappadocia was one of the hot air balloon capitals of the world? And, and then you see some of these others, uh, Laodicea, Miletus, um, Lycia, Smyrna, Pergamum. Many of, the, many of the names that you've seen in the Bible, Philippi, uh, Philippi, right up at the top of the Aegean Sea there, Philippi. Uh, Thessalonica, right up there. This is the area that Paul worked in. And then over in Italy, the far left, way up in the upper left-hand corner, you see where Rome is in relationship 
to, uh, to Greece. And, uh, and that whole area, uh, Galatia, uh, under the Black Sea there, that whole area is now modern-day Turkey. So many of the areas that Paul worked in are now in, in Turkey. That's where we started, Istanbul to uh, Barcelona. 23 ports, some of the same ports that Paul sailed into. And I want to show you just a few pictures of what some of that looked like. We walked the, the same streets and we're in some of the, the same cities that Paul was in. This is an artist's conception of what ancient Corinth might have looked like. Notice right in the center there's a, a central fountain and then there, there's also a, right behind that uh, temple there, there is a, a raised area called a bima. Um, and, and these are just some pictures of some of the ruins uh, that we took while we were there. Uh, one of the, the impacts, this is actually part of the bima. Uh, you might have guessed that that ramp wasn't there in Paul's day. <laughs> I have a couple more pictures that I'll show you. But the bima was a raised platform in which, we'll read about it, in, uh, on which uh, Gallio uh, spoke to the crowd and made his ruling about Paul. That's where that occurred. Um, the, ac the, uh, the, the mountain that you saw in the background was Acro-Corinth. Um, there's a, a fortification on top of that. Um, uh, to get up there, I can't imagine what that would have been like to, to get up there in Paul's day. Um, we took a tour bus, which was a little bit easier. But this is the view from Acro-Corinth, that fortification. The temple of uh, Aphrodite was also up there. That's where people went up, went up to worship. And uh, this is that fortress. It overlooks ancient Corinth and, and the, uh, the Bay of Corinth that you see there out in the Aegean. Uh, so that's just a little bit. Of, I want to give you a visual as to what some of, that, some of the ruins look like and then what it may have looked like in, in Paul's day as well. And I found myself intrigued by Paul's life as we walked through some of those areas like uh, Corinth and Ephesus, walking through some of those ruins, and, uh, and what he endured for the sake of the gospel. So much so that I read a couple biographies of Paul when I got back, one by uh, John Pollock, an historian, and another one by N.T. Wright, the, uh, the, the um, theologian. But our focus will be on, on today on what Paul accomplished, what God accomplished through Paul as he worked in, in Corinth. Let me give you a little history and background of Corinth. Corinth uh, was a, a truly an ancient city. I mean, it was occupied from the earliest times um, uh, in 146 B.C., the Romans destroyed it, actually. It was a thriving trade center at that time. The Romans destroyed it in 146 B.C. and then rebuilt it again 100 years later. It, uh, Corinth was right on the uh, on Isthmus, a narrow piece of land that uh, was, a, was the, uh, the area where there were prime trading routes, both land and, and sea. So it, it was just a, a very busy... It had two seaports, and, and just a very busy in terms of uh, trade at the time when Paul visited there, which was 51 A.D., 51 years after the birth of Christ, approximately. Uh, it was a bustling um, metropolitan Greco-Roman um, city with about 250,000 people, more or less, depending on there were hundreds and li literally thousands of slaves during that time that uh, were involved in commerce. Um, it was also a, a, a strategic place for Paul because he always thought that if 
uh, he could establish a church, a strong church in a place like Corinth that was on so many major trade routes. There were people coming and going every day. It would be a powerful way to expand the gospel. So this was a, a strategic a objective for, for Paul. But it was also an idol-worshiping, sex-saturated culture. When we think of our time, and, and sometimes we think from our perspective that uh, it couldn't get any worse, that, uh, that the preoccupation of, of sexu with sexuality in our culture is the worst it's ever been. I, I really don't think so. I, I think that uh, it's not that there isn't a lot that, that shouldn't be going on, but uh, uh, Corinth cloaked uh, rampant sexuality in religious devotion to the, uh, to the Greek and Roman god Apollo and Aphrodite. And... Um, those temples were both dedicated to the glorification of all forms of sexual deviancy. They boasted hundreds of consecrated male and female uh, prostitutes, temple prostitutes. And, and Corinth was so well known for its rampant sexuality that uh, historian John Pollock notes that in the ancient world, to be called a Corinthian was, was uh, synonymous with sexual excess. And that was the moral quagmire in which Paul proposed to take the gospel and build a church. Let's read about it. In uh, Acts 18, verses 1 through 17, we'll read through the whole works and then we'll revisit some portions of that. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy, and his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Claudius was the emperor at the time. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named, and I looked up this pronunciation, Titius Eustace. Titius Eustace, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. That couldn't have made the Jews too happy, but that's the way God arranged it. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the, in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And, and this is where, this is a crucial piece where uh, God came to Paul in the night with a vision uh, to encourage him. He said, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I, I have many in this city who are my people. Think about that for a moment. I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul or governor of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, 
the ruler of the, the synagogue and, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to this. We're, we're guessing, we're speculating, the historians are speculating that Crispus, uh, who came to faith in Christ in the synagogue, was probably expelled from the synagogue for that. And so Sosthenes then, at the end of the chapter, uh, became the ruler of the synagogue and, and took a beating for it from the Jews in front of Gallio. So uh, Paul's strategy was, uh, was always the synagogue. And he found new friends in Aquila and Priscilla. Um, they, were, uh, they were also tent makers. Uh, this may be a detail you, you were uh, aware of or not, but every Jewish rabbi, every Jewish uh, uh, teacher had a trade, usually passed down from their father. Uh, Paul's was tent making. And they didn't think it was ethical to receive the uh, payment uh, for teaching as a rabbi, and, and so they had to have a trade. So all, all had a trade, and Paul's was tent making. So one of the first orders of business was supporting himself in Corinth, and he connected with, with uh, Aquila and Priscilla. We don't know if they were Christians already um, in Rome uh, before they emigrated, but um, whether they became Christians uh, with Paul, as, as converts of Paul. They'd been forced to emigrate from Rome to to uh, Corinth when the Emperor Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome because uh, uh, there were riots uh, in Rome probably because, and we're speculating again, probably because of the introduction of uh, Christianity into uh, the synagogues, some of the Jews were rioting there, got them all kicked out of Rome. And so Paul always started with the synagogues for a number of reasons. First of all, it, as a highly educated Pharisee and rabbi, uh, Paul had the standing the standing, if you will, the, the creds, uh, the standing to, um, to read the scroll and then teach from it on Saturdays in, in, the, uh, in the synagogue. And, and that's what he did. Uh, it was the first thing he did was request the opportunity to do that in, in a synagogue and uh, read from the scroll and then, and then taught. He had, a, he had a common frame of reference with uh, the Jews and the other God-fearers in the synagogues because they all accepted Old Testament Scripture as authoritative. And, and so they had a common basis of, of understanding. So what Paul would try to do is, is bridge from that common understanding they had about Old Testament Scripture to the Old Testament prophecies uh, about Jesus. And he would, he would reason and argue with the Jews that Jesus, in fact, was the Messiah that they'd been waiting for. That, that was what the discussion was about. And it, uh, Luke says, uh, Luke, the writer of Acts, says that uh, Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And, and here's a principle for us uh, uh, that I want us to see this morning, and that is that Paul contextualized his presentation of the gospel to factor in the background of his hearers. He contextualized it. In other words, he, he, he varied his approach depending on the background and the perspective and the knowledge base of his hearers. He approached the Jews based on their common understanding of Old Testament prophecy and scripture. He didn't, he didn't have to explain to them who God was, for example, or what the attributes were of God, or God's history with the nation of Israel. Uh, they, they, they were on board with all of that. They, they knew that and, and they accepted that. Uh, so uh, his, his role was to convince them that uh, Jesus was the Messiah that had been prophesied about. With the Athenians, however, you notice that Paul came over from Athens. That's a 46-mile trip. Now, we did that in a tour bus. 
but uh, on, with Paul, it was, it was on foot. So that, 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 was, a, that was a difficult uh, transit, and a lot of that country is mountainous as well. So just to go from Athens to uh, Corinth uh, was quite an endeavor. And with the Athenians, uh, Paul had to literally introduce a completely new concept of who God is. Uh, how has he, what has he already done in creation? What are his plans uh, to rescue us through Jesus Christ? Uh, he didn't have all that with the Athenians. We're going to read about it here in Acts 17. I'm going to ask you to flip back a chapter here to Acts 17. And I want you to take note of the fact that the, the difference in the way that he approached the Athenians, the, the pagan, pagan is not a derogatory term, it, it just means a non-Christian, um, that he, uh, that he uh, engaged the uh, pagan Athenians with as he tried to explain who God was. Let's read it, uh, read about it beginning at verse 22, 22 through 32. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, the Areopagus was... Uh, if you know what Mars Hill is, when Gene and I were standing on the uh, Acropolis or the, uh, by the Parthenon in, in Athens, you could look down and you could see a marble outcropping below that. And on that marble outcropping, was that's where Mars Hill was. That was the Areopagus. That's where people came to speak and trade ideas. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I, per I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives mankind gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And now he's, gonna, he's going to quote uh, some of their own poets and philosophers in, in, a, in an effort to connect with them. In him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Those are direct quotes out of, out of a couple of their philosophers and poets. And then in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He's explaining who God is. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And of course, that's where, um, that's where they lost him because uh, he was claiming something supernatural. And many of the Greeks at that time didn't believe in, even in a life after death, let alone a supernatural event like a, a resurrection. Uh, but what I want you to take note of is the difference between the way he engaged with the Athenians and the difference and, and the way that he engaged with the uh, Jews in the synagogue. Two different audiences, right? And, and therefore, two different ways of engaging. Notice what he did with the, uh, with the Athenians. 
First of all, he complimented them on their, their obvious religiosity. He, he connected with them on, on that level. And, and then he, he used the, the uh, instance of the unknown God at, as a bridge. He says, uh, let me tell you about your unknown God. He, he introduced the real God of the universe as, as a creator of the universe, the creator of all mankind, the sustainer of the mankind and the, and the universe. And, and then he corrected some of their misunderstanding about God's attributes. He, he said, um, he said, God desires us to seek him as opposed to their superstitious uh, obligations as part of the temple rituals. And, and then he used words from their own poets to, to bridge from their understanding what they found familiar uh, to what was new uh, about God, to a clear statement finally that, that God requires repentance and belief. So all of that was in that little sermon uh, that, that he gave to the Athenians. But see how different it is from what he did with the Jews, the way he talked about Jesus uh, to the Jews. Uh, the point here is that just like Paul, we have to tailor our approach to the background and the understanding of the individuals that we share Jesus with. The, the truth of God's word never changes, does it? Uh, but the way we present Jesus Christ to the various people in our network of relationships is not a one-size-fits-all proposition. Uh, let me share with you one of the resources that, uh, that I think might be useful to you. This little booklet is one that uh, Kyle Denny is using in his uh, evangelism training. It's happening on Wednesday nights right now. It's called Before You Share Your Faith, Five Ways to Be Evangelism Ready. One of the issues, I'll talk about a little bit more later, but one of the issues that uh, he deals with there is uh, contextualizing the gospel, understanding the background of the person that you're talking with uh, before you share your faith. It's a great little primer. It's only uh, $5.50 on Amazon. You can order it. And it's in your notes. If you have the notes, I included the reference in your notes. Um, but it's a great little primer uh, that will sharpen your skills on how to, how to uh, relate to other people who do not yet know Jesus and then to prepare yourself to, to share the gospel with them. Well, Paul was rejected by the, the Jewish leaders. Luke writes uh, that the Jewish leaders opposed and reviled him in, in verse 6. Paul responded by shaking out his garments and saying uh, their blood was on their own hands. Now, everybody that heard that would have recognized where that came from. That came right out of Ezekiel 33, where, where the messenger, in Ezekiel 33, the messenger is absolved of the responsibility uh, for, for those people they're speaking to if, if they uh, fail to heed the warning. The, the messenger is absolved of the responsibility. So they would have known exactly what he was talking about. But notice that Paul pressed on. He wasn't dissuaded by the hostility and opposition there. And in the same way, folks, when we share uh, Jesus Christ with people, there may be uh, some who don't want to talk about it or who are uh, actively opposed or who uh, feel like it's none of our business or who um, are even hostile as they, as they were in Paul's day. There, there is hostility to the, to the gospel. But that doesn't mean, uh, when we experience opposition, that doesn't mean that that is a sign from God that we should stop speaking. It wasn't for Paul. He didn't quit just because people disagreed with what he was saying. Uh, Jesus told us the gospel itself will be an offense to some people. He said, in this world you will have trouble. Yes, we, we need to be as winsome and as gentle and as persuasive as we can and as loving as we can, as gracious as we can. 
uh, but some people will be offended. That is not a sign from God that we should stop speaking. Paul was immediately uh, offered the use of a large home in which to meet by a new convert, uh, Titius Eustace, uh, described as a worshiper of God. He was probably a Gentile who came to faith in Christ under Paul's ministry in Corinth there and probably a Gentile believer. He was obviously well-to-do because he had a large house. Gene and I saw a number of those homes in not just Corinth but Ephesus in particular. They, they always contained a large courtyard. And, uh, and if you were a wealthy person, you probably had your own fountain. Keep in mind there was no running water. Uh, but if you had your own fountain, uh, that, that large courtyard um, in the midst of the house with a fountain in the center and uh, mosaic tiles all the way around the, the fountain, if you can imagine that, beautiful mosaic tiles, uh, that would have been the kind of place where Paul would have set up church. And uh, Eustace said, um, why don't you use my place? And so... Uh, John Pollock, the historian, um, describes what that scene may have looked like on Sunday mornings. He says, When the news spread in the city that Paul had been forced out of the synagogue, pagan Corinthians began at last to flock into the church until early on any Sunday morning the lawn and mosaics surround, surrounding, uh, surrounding the fountain in the house of Gaius Titius Eustace were covered by men and women sitting sep separately, all eyes on Paul as he preached, and on Silas or Timothy as they baptized afterwards. And Pollock goes on to point out that, uh, that they met at dawn on Sunday mornings. That, the reason that would be the case is because uh, Sunday was an ordinary day to the, the, the Jews. They worshiped on Saturday. That was their holy day. So Sunday would have been okay for the Jews to meet, and they met very early. I don't want to hear anybody complaining about getting here at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning because they met at daybreak or before daybreak on Sunday mornings uh, because it, it had to be at a time when even slaves could meet. Many of the slaves were part of Paul's church in Corinth. They had to get up early. They had to go to work. So on, on Sunday morning, they came there early uh, to worship and, and to hear from Paul. Well, Paul had fears and... Uh, and God uh, gave him this wonderful promise. We tend to think of Paul as indomitable, but, uh, and we don't know precisely why God chose this particular moment to encourage him, but it could well have been the apprehension that Paul had uh, about what had happened to him previously, and he didn't want to see a, a recurrence of that. He was, uh, he was beaten with the 40 lashes minus one, I think, uh, five times, I think, and um, he, he certainly didn't want a recurrence of that if he could avoid it. And then he was ex, uh, expelled from some of the cities where, where he had hoped to work longer. So he, he didn't want to, that to happen in Corinth when uh, his ministry was showing such promise to begin with. So this is God's promise to Paul in verses 9 through 11. Well, one night, uh, God came to Paul in a vision. He didn't do that lightly, so it must have been serious. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. In other words, God already knew that there were many in Corinth who would ultimately come to faith in Jesus Christ once they had the opportunity to hear the gospel message. Paul's job was to continue to speak. 
not be silent, continue to speak the truth about Jesus Christ and to let the Holy Spirit do the rest. And, and this message, God's message to Paul here is also his message to us, folks, that uh, God has placed each of us into a network of relationships by design because he knows that he has many people in this area in our networks of relationships that do not yet know Jesus Christ but need to hear about him. That's our job. It's our job to speak, not to be silent, knowing that God is with us just as he, as he was for Paul. So our job is to, first of all, pray by name for those uh, we know who are not yet believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, pray that, that uh, God will create opportunities to speak about what Jesus has done in your life, why you're a follower of Jesus Christ. The most powerful testimony you have uh, is uh, why are you a follower of Jesus Christ? What has Jesus done in your life? And, and then thirdly, that God will empower you with the right words to say and the, and the right timing. And then number four, leave the results to the Holy Spirit. Some of us uh, worry as if... Um, as if, as if bringing people to Christ is our job. It isn't. Our job is to speak. It's the Holy Spirit's job uh, to lead people to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, the Scripture tells us that God's not willing that any should perish, that He wants all to come to repentance. If uh, there are people that are on your heart, uh, your friends, your relatives, that do not yet know Jesus Christ, um, you can bet that God wants them to come to faith much more than you do. And, and, and he's all about that. So what we need to do is pray and uh, look for opportunities, uh, speak a word uh, when it's timely, and uh, God will use that. Well, the Jews saw an opportunity to derail Paul's ministry at the uh, Corinthian Bema, it's called. Uh, a Bema is simply a raised platform. And you may have seen uh, part of that in the, in the uh, artist's sketch that you saw earlier. I'm going to show you an, another picture here shortly, uh, but uh, they saw an opportunity when, when a new governor came to town. Gallio was uh, proconsul of Acacia, the scripture tells us in verses 12 and 13. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. So you'll see a, a picture of the, uh, a couple pictures of the Bema. This is a, a judgment seat, actually it's a raised platform. But anything that happened in terms of uh, orators who came in, uh, public figures like governors that wished to address the people, this is where that, this is where that occurred, the, the Bema, this raised platform. And it was right in the middle of the Roman Agora there, the marketplace between all the shops. And so people, the, the, the whole town would come out and, and would listen uh, from that, that perspective. Lucius uh, Junius Gallo, Gallio, excuse me, was a, was the brother of the great Roman philosopher Seneca. Some of you remember, may remember that name. Seneca, in turn, was an, a, a favorite of the Emperor Claudius, who was in power at the time. And we know the, the exact date of Gallio's appointment because of a, a fragment that was found at Delphi nearby uh, that indicated when he was appointed to that position in A.D. 51. So he got there just after, sometime after uh, uh, Paul did. And because he was the governor of what was the most powerful and important province in Greece at the time, uh, his decision would be monumental, would set a precedent going forward. 
So it, it, it had uh, uh, huge implications for the, the spread of the gospel. The, the Jews already had the right. You may not have known this, this detail. I didn't. The, the, the Jews already had the right as an established religion under Roman law uh, to worship God in their synagogues and then to be exempted from the idol worship that the other citizens were, were required to perform in those pagan temples. But what the Jews were, here's the fine legal point. What the Jews were trying to convince Gallio of was that Paul was trying to establish a new religion which would have been in violation of Roman law and, and could have uh, subjected Paul to the, the death penalty. So because of, uh, the, the stakes were very high, but because of Gallio's position and, and influence, his, his decision would set a legal precedent that could either stall the spread of the gospel or rapidly accelerate its growth. Paul was all ready to speak in his defense. You know, he was an articulate man. He was trained as a lawyer. Uh, so he, he was in a great position to, to argue. But God decided otherwise. <clears throat> and Gallio did too. Uh, Gallio had already made his decision um, before the Jews finished speaking. We read in verse 14 through 16, when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wronged, wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. Uh, when I read that, the, the verse that came to my mind was Proverbs 21.1, where we read, A king's heart is like streams of water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. You see, God influences rulers and the decisions they make. And he was true to his promise to Paul in influencing Gallio, giving Paul Gallio's favor in this situation and opening the door to the spread of the gospel. Paul's response had to be, thank you, Lord. God was faithful to his promise to Paul. But Gallio's decision had enormous implications for the gospel. This was really a pivotal point in, uh, in the ministry in, in Asia, uh, Greece of the time. Gallio's decision, uh, uh, Gallio had made, uh, had, had changed Rome from God's persecutor to God's protector. Rome became God's protector in Corinth and, and allowed him to preach freely about Jesus without interference from anyone else. Because Gallio ruled that Christianity was not a new religion, was not a violation of Jewish law, but was in fact a, a mere extension of the Jewish religion that Rome already tolerated. And N.T. Wright puts it this way. This was a momentous event in the history of the church. And one wonders if even Paul had seen it coming. What it meant was that unlike the authorities in the other territories he had visited, the official Roman governor of southern Greece, Achaia, had declared that being a Jesus follower was to be seen as a variation of the Jewish way of life. So here's a practical implication, something that really opened up the gospel. Not only were, were the Jews exempted, not only were the Jews exempted from the civic cult ritual in those temples, uh, but that, that same exemption was extended to all Christians, both Jews and Gentiles. So a Gentile Christian who came, a Gentile who came to faith as a, as a Christian under Paul's ministry, no longer had to attend the, uh, the pagan uh, cult rituals in, in the temple. We know that Paul may have stayed for as long as two years there. It says a year and a half, but we don't know when they began dating that from. So it could have been as long as, 
as two years. It's also significant, uh, I think, in, uh, in God's providence going forward through the centuries that that bima that we looked at just a few minutes ago, that bima actually became the site of a Christian church later on during the Byzantine era, probably after 400 AD sometimes, um, that uh, became a, the site of a, a Christian church. When Jean and I visited there, we found a, we were standing on that bima, we found a marker stone left many years ago. I, I don't know when it was left. It certainly wasn't there in Paul's time, but it's engraved in Greek and English with the following verse. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4.17. Those, those are Paul's words inspired by the Holy Spirit as a, as a promise to the Corinthian Christians, but also to us. Light momentary affliction and an eternal weight of glory. Well, what can we learn from Paul's story? God places us each in networks of relationships with people who do not yet know Jesus Christ. And, and God desires that we be willing and prepared to speak to others about our faith in Jesus. Uh, Peter put it this way, the Apostle Peter, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Notice that uh, Peter says you may experience rejection, but God will bless you anyway. God will bless you, especially if you experience rejection. We should be prepared to explain why we have chosen to follow Jesus. What difference has he made in our lives? That's the most powerful testimony most powerful witness that you have. And, and it's indisputable, folks, when you talk about why Jesus is important to you. And we need to share in a way that is gentle and loving and respectful. We also learn that God has many people in this city. I often prayed in the staff meetings uh, from Acts 18 uh, that uh, I said, Lord, we know that you have many people in this city. We ask you to move their hearts to, to engage with us here at church and for each one of us ask that you prepare us to engage with them, that we would engage with them wisely in, in a way that advances the kingdom and draws them to Christ. Our job is simply to speak about our faith in Jesus and, and leave the results to the Holy Spirit. Sometimes uh, we fret over um, um, how, how badly we've, we've shared, uh, how we feel inept at what we do, but God... God uses our words, even if they're not perfect. He's not looking for perfect evangelists here. He's looking for people who are talking about their own experience with Jesus. And, uh, and he, he can work through that. His Holy Spirit is the one who delivers the results. Here are some tools that we can use to calm our fears and sharpen our skills. I already shared with you about uh, this book, uh, Before You Share Your Faith, Five Ways to Be Evangelism Ready. And Kyle, excuse me, uh, Matt Smethurst in this book says... Uh, there are five things that we can do. Number one, to grasp the gospel. Have an understanding of the basic gospel mission. Any, any one of the resources that I'm going to share with you this morning will give you, a, uh, if you're fuzzy on it, will give you a, a, a basic understanding, all that you need to know about uh, sharing the gospel with Jesus, uh, about Jesus Christ. And then check your context. Understand who you're talking with and trying to connect with. Love the lost. Ask God to give you a love for people who are not yet believers and uh, reflect, 
Christ's love toward them in, in our demeanor and in our words. Sometimes uh, that's hard to do. And sometimes, unfortunately, uh, we as Christians can come across as condescending or even self-righteous, uh, talking down to people. Um, we have to remember that uh, people are precious to God. Uh, he loves the people that we're talking with uh, as uh, whether they're believers or not. His desire is to draw them to faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes, too, uh, don't we think that people should be sanctified before they're saved? In other words, uh, some of the behaviors are, are kind of off-putting, and, and we think that uh, people should really clean up their act before we can call them Christians. That's not the way God sees it. He accepts us just the way we are. I like to say that this church is, is not a country club for holy people. It's an ER for broken people. And we're all broken people in one way or another. And, and so we need to respond with uh, love and grace and acceptance. Then he says, face your fear. Acknowledge your fear and ask God for the, the courage to, to share your faith. Paul acknowledged his fear. We see it in Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. He says, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm, I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And then finally, start to speak. Pray for God to give you the words and the timing. And then speak in the confidence that he will work through you. He will use your words. Whether you feel like you're competent or not, he will use your words over time to lead someone to faith in Christ. Sometimes you're just planting a seed. They don't come to Christ until, until much later. Um, and that's a good point that, uh, you know, you and I, when we speak to somebody about Jesus, we don't have to feel an obligation to close the deal, as it were. Don't expect a person to drop to their knees and pray to receive Jesus Christ the first conversation we have with them. It doesn't, it, it most often doesn't happen that way. Usually there are a series of conversations over time as, as we build trust and cultivate relationships with people and, uh, and there's a mutual trust and a mutual respect, then people will listen to us. We have standing. We have a friendship with them. They respect us. And uh, we have standing with them uh, to speak into their lives. I like the quote from uh, Matt Smethurst. He says, the world is a spiritual graveyard. Our job is to walk through the cemetery and speak to caskets. God's job is to crack them open. That's good, isn't it? The second, uh, second resource I want to share with you is, uh, was put together actually by our Pastor Rich Bruce, the missions guy, and uh, the men's, men's fellowship guy. It's called, How Did We Get Here? And uh, it, it helps us to engage with people on some of the basic questions of life. How did we get here? Who is God? Who are we in relationship to God? And then it guides us into a conversation with them. It can begin as a discussion starter uh, with a friend, but then it guides us into a deeper conversation about our relationship with God, his plan to rescue us from sin and death, and, and uh, through Jesus Christ. And it's easy to use uh, with a friend. So we had a few of these out there earlier. I understand we're out. We're going to order more this week, and there will be more out there next week in the atrium for you. The third one is one I've used many times, and it's uh, called How to Become a Christian. It's a Billy Graham uh, little pamphlet. It's out there as well. It's a very concise explanation of the gospel. Usually I'll give uh, someone else who, who uh, I sense is uh, ready to come to Christ, uh, I'll give them one of these, and I'll ask them to read the scripture in it. There are several uh, scripture verses in there, and, and then I'll, I'll read the other parts. And and it, it guides a person through to an understanding of the gospel, and at the end, it provides an opportunity to, to pray to receive Christ. 
usually at the end I'll say, well, do you have any questions? Do you think you understand? And we'll talk a little bit about it. But then I say, well, are, are you ready to, to, to uh, uh, make a life-changing difference in your life? Are you ready to pray to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior? And the vast majority of people say, yes, I, I am. That's what I want to do. They sense that they need that in their lives. And so there's an opportunity to lead someone. And I've used this a number of times to lead people to faith in Christ. You can too. It's not very difficult. And God will be with you, as he said in his promise. So just as God places us strategic, just as God placed Paul strategically in relationships with other people uh, who came to faith in Jesus Christ because of what Paul said, God has surrounded us with people, you and I, are in networks of relationships by design, by God's design. And uh, some of those people are people who are waiting to receive Christ until they hear us speak to them about it. The Apostle Paul uh, put it best when he described it in his letter to, to Corinthians, both our, our role as representatives of Jesus Christ and, and the heart of the message. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For, he, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we, be, we, we might become the righteousness of God. I'm going to share you, uh, with you a, a quick story. Um, back in 2011, I was diagnosed with cancer, right, colon cancer. And... Um, when I got that diagnosis, I, I just, uh, I asked God, I said, I don't know why I've allowed this into my life, uh, but I just entrust you with it. And, and uh, you take this cancer and teach me what it is that uh, you want me to learn. So over time, I began to understand that part of it was, uh, he said, that's part of your equipping for ministry. But he also had people that he wanted me to connect with. First day I walked into Sparrow uh, Cancer Center, I had, uh, I had surgery and then a month of radiation. So I went there for radiation. First day I walked in there, there's a guy sitting against the back wall. He had a Harley Davidson cap on, and he looked like death warmed over. And uh, I found out he was getting both chemo and radiation at the same time. He had some kind of esophageal cancer. His name was Rick. Well, I'd rode motorcycles for years. And so I, uh, I just sensed that God was saying, he's one of the reasons you're here. So I went and sat next to him. We struck up a conversation. We became friends over time. And, and, and he was very sick. There were times when he couldn't get his treatments. His blood count was way off and, and so on. So one night he emailed me late, late in the evening and he said, Gary, you seem to have such a peace about what you're going through. Uh, whatever it is, I want that too. I said, I can help you with that. So, uh, <clears throat> so we, we met. And actually, he, uh, he, was, he had been hospitalized. And we met and... Um, he, he, you know, I explained the gospel to him just like we talked about here. And uh, he received Jesus Christ as his Savior. And then I, I prayed for him for his healing, and, and he was healed. And he uh, completed his treatments. He, he left. He retired. Uh, last I knew, he was riding Harley-Davidson's in, in Florida. He still owes me a ride on a Harley-Davidson, by the way. <laughs> but that's an example of how God positions us in people's lives. In order to make a, uh, in order to change the the whole eternal trajectory of their lives, and and he will do that in your life as well. And I'm sure he has for many of you. Many of you have touched other people, and you'll you'll get to heaven, and somebody will step up to you and say, uh, "You may not remember me, but remember when we had that conversation back in, 
and you'll find that, uh, that maybe you're the reason that, that they're in heaven in God's providence. So, life is short. Let's determine to represent Jesus Christ well in this place at this moment in history. This is our time to those people around us who are waiting to hear the, the life-changing news about Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for uh, the great gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, first of all. We thank you for the opportunity to represent you. Uh, you told us we're your ambassadors, and, and so we pray that uh, you'd give us a, a heart uh, for the people who do not yet know you as their Savior. We pray that you'd direct us to them in your providence. We pray that you'd equip us and, and give us a passion to share uh, the difference that Jesus has made in our lives and to change their eternal destiny as a result. We ask these things in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for your time, folks, and have a great week.